Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Back before the pandemic, a somewhat novel parenting problem had come to receive a shorthand name that was sure to fill many of us with dread, screen time. And then the pandemic hit and screens became the route to just about everything from school to work to doctor's appointments. It will come as no surprise that a new common sense media survey found an enormous jump in the time that teens and tweens spend with their devices. But is this the new normal, the new waterline, or will parents be able to wean their kids and themselves off those screens now that most pandemic restrictions have ended? That's coming up next on Forum after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. There's probably no stat that could surprise you about how much people use their phones, tablets, and computers. But let's try. According to Common Sense Media's new study, the average tween, that's 8 to 12 years old, spends how much time on screens for entertainment use? Think of your guess. Okay, the answer is five and a half hours. That's up 17% since 2019. And the older teens are up by a similar amount, spending an average of eight and a half hours, a full-on long workday on screen entertainment. So that's the reality of screen use. And there are all kinds of ways we can cut the data, and we will. But what's it mean? How should parents respond? What do teens think? Here to help us make sense of where we are on screen use in this trans-pandemic period, we're joined by Victoria Rideout. She is the lead researcher for the Common Sense Census Media Use by teens and tweens. Welcome, Victoria. Thank you so much. We also joined by Jason Nagata, Assistant Professor of Pediatrics and Adolescent Medicine at UCSF. Welcome, Dr. Nagata. Thanks, and great to be here. And Anya Kamenetz, Education Correspondent, NPR, and the author of The Art of Screen Time, Your Family Can Balance Digital Media and Real Life, or at least the subtitle says. Thanks for joining us, Anya. Thanks for having me. Um, Victoria, let's start out with you. 
How surprising is this big jump sort of relative to previous periods or, you know, relative to what you expected from the pandemic? Well, I think we all understood that everybody's screen use went up enormously during the pandemic, right? So what I think was important about this survey was that we were looking at not just how did screen use among young people change during the pandemic, but what did those changes look like after most of the lockdowns had ended? Kids were back in school. They were beginning to be able to socialize with their friends again. They were beginning to be able to do extracurricular activities again. So that's why we compared a period of time that was like six months before the pandemic hit the U.S. to last fall, in the fall of 2021, when a lot of schools had opened up again. And I'll tell you, I mean, it is uh, it is a much bigger increase over these past two years than we had found over the four years prior to that. So, for example, if you look at the tweens, eight to 12 year old kids there, the amount of screen content that they consumed or engaged with increased about 50 minutes a day on average over this last couple year period compared to about eight minutes a day increase over the previous four years. So it's pretty substantial. Do you attribute that to basically parents holding down the screen time in the pre-pandemic period? And then when the pandemic hit, people just said, listen, I got to survive here. Oh, yeah. And I mean, the, the, the screen use was incredibly important to young people, just as it was to all of us in helping them make it through the pandemic as well as they did. I mean, it was critical for a number of reasons. It helped them. And, and by the way, these data don't include anything to do with going to online school or doing right. your this is entertainment right. only. Right. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And so but I mean, it was really important for them to be able to stay connected to their friends. Um, they're doing it through online gaming, having watch parties, FaceTiming friends, having Zoom parties. It was important in helping them keep their mood up, just be entertained and pass the time Um, for kids who are creative and want to do art and things like that. This was a way for them to get inspiration, to express their creativity. And to some degree, it also helped them, I think, protect their mental health in terms of connecting with other young people who were maybe uh, going through similar situations and struggling with similar things that they were, um, learning how those kids made it to the other side of those challenges. So I think, you know, there were a lot of positives about it. And and that's one of the reasons that screen use increased so dramatically. Yeah. Anya, you were talking about screen time a lot before the pandemic. How did COVID times change the way you were thinking about this dilemma that parents face? Alexis, it really helped humble me and helped me understand that so much less of this is in our control than we really think that it is. I mean, I thought I had an equity lens before, but when I was faced with a two-parent, two-career family with inadequate childcare, I really understood for the first time what screen time and before it, television did for families, which was enable them to do things and make sure that the kids were occupied and safe. And so the notion that, you know, through through better parenting, um, we can have an optimal relationship with screens and balance. I don't believe that, you know, there's nothing parents can do, but I do believe that there's a lot of privilege that goes into the idea that we're optimizing our kids' uh, screens. Because truly, when you take away a kid's uh, media, uh, what you're 
implicitly promising them is that you're going to be able to provide them some other kind of occupation, enrichment, some outdoor activity, something else, some adult's attention. Um, and the fact is that just not as many families have access to those things as we'd like to think that they do. And Victoria, if we take a look at the data that you gathered, I mean, we can see basically that the higher the household income, the less screen time. Absolutely. And, you know, I think there's a lot of things that go into it. There are there are disparities in screen use by gender. So boys use about an hour more of screen media a day than girls do. There are disparities by race and ethnicity. African-American kids are, are using about two hours a day more than white kids. And then the lower income, the, the differences by income are the biggest. So it's up to three hours a day difference among tweens. And um, it, for sure, it's entertainment media is a relatively affordable pleasure. It's affordable way to um, maybe access do-it-yourself uh, information, fun, think of activities to do at home, learn how to do something you, you didn't know how to do before. But I do think when, when you have young people engaging with this huge amount of content that's coming from outside your home. It's often being consumed on a small device. So you may not know just what it is your kid is looking at, what it is they're playing. With headphones on because you're on a Zoom call, (laughs) right? Yeah, right. And it's really important to understand what, what, kind of content are your kids engaging with? What what are they watching? What are the messages embedded in that content? What are the messages about gender roles, about racial or ethnic stereotypes? What about diversity? What about violence, kindness and compassion? And are kids truly safe online or are is some you know anonymous algorithm directing them as to what they want to view next instead of you or them making that choice? Yeah. Jason Agata, you know, if we look at this data, we see that boys are using their phones substantially more than other genders. And what have you seen specifically among boys and how this kind of connectivity, the values and the stereotypes and the portrayals that Victoria was telling us about, how have those affected the boys you work with? Yeah, thanks so much. I think that's a really great question because everyone is different. And while we do see these gender differences overall, you know, all teens are different. All families have different Uh, screen context. And so it's important to just realize that one size doesn't fit all. Um, But yeah, as Victoria mentioned, overall, boys do have more screen use than girls. Um, A lot of that is driven traditionally by video games. Uh, But I think it's important to note that um, boys are affected by social media too. When the Facebook files came out a few months ago, I think a lot of attention was on impacts on teen girls' mental health, like body image, Um, you know, suicide risk. And I think those are all really important, but I think those are also things that can affect boys too. Um, I'm a physician at UCSF and I take care of adolescents with eating disorders. Um, During the pandemic, we've seen an explosion of eating disorders. Unfortunately, it's been really heartbreaking over, um, we've seen more than a doubling in teenagers who needed to be hospitalized um, for eating disorders. And that's pretty similar to trends across the country. Um, And I think boys are affected too. Uh, You know, some of the uh, constant comparisons to others' bodies. Uh, and I think if you, as a teenager, look at certain types of content, the algorithms will feed it back to you. And so it is easy to get stuck into this vortex of, you know, disordered eating content or weight loss content or, you know, or other types of content. And it is very hard for these teens to get out. Yeah. So I think that has been a huge thing. We, we, we're really in a, 
and a mental health crisis right now. And I, I don't think that we've quite um, been able to leave it, even with the reopening of schools. Yeah, I mean, if you look at any workout content on Instagram, the next thing you know, every single man you see on your uh, feed will be shredded in a way that no human being I've ever seen in real life actually is. Um, We're talking about the rise in screen use by tweens and teens during the pandemic and how adults and caregivers can address these issues. We're joined by Jason Nagata, Assistant Professor of Pediatrics and Adolescent Medicine at UCSF. Anya Kamenetz, uh, education correspondent at NPR and the author of The Art of Screen Time, as well as Victoria Rideout, the lead researcher for the Common Sense Census Media Use by Teens and Tweens, a new report out of that organization. We'd love to hear from you. If you've tried to put boundaries on your kids' screen time, what didn't work? Why didn't it work? And what's a positive in allowing kids to have access to screens? And of course, you know, it's hard to get teens and tweens to call into forum, but... We'd love to hear from you. If you are a teen or tween out there listening, do you think you're spending too much time on a screen? Let us know. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, of course, KQED Forum, and the emails forum at kqed.org. You know, on your, um, before we go into the break, I just want to ask you, how distinct do you think the problems with screen time are from what we saw in an earlier generation with television? That's a great question. Uh, Vicky called out uh, some of the aspects. Uh, you know, some of it goes down to the form factor, right? This is a mobile device. You can take it anywhere. So it's at the restaurant, it's at the park, it's in the living room, it's in the bedroom. Um, these are all kinds of issues. Um, and the fact that it's a personal device, so it's not in a shared family space. Funny to think that we would be nostalgic for the hearth that was the sitcom um, of a previous generation. <laughs> right, we- yeah, exactly. Um, But now, you know, people like myself recommend that you do try to co-view with your kids, watch things together with your kids. So those two things do make it different in terms of sheer time on device. It's not so different. So the hours and hours and hours that we're hearing about um, that kids do spend with their devices uh, is not an order of magnitude different from television and even video games in the 80s and 90s, 70s and 60s. We're talking about the rise in screen use by tweens and teens during the pandemic and what kind of anyone can do about it. Feel free to join our conversation. If you've tried to put boundaries on your kid's screen time, particularly since the pandemic, uh, what didn't work? Why didn't it work? Or what did work? The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on all the social media channels or you can email forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. 
Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the rise in screen use by tweens and teens. Talking a lot about the Common Sense Census, which is a new report out from Common Sense Media. And we've got lead researcher Victoria Rideout. People call her Vicky. Vicky Rideout here with us. Uh, Jason Nagata, assistant professor of pediatrics and adolescent medicine at UCSF. And Anya Kamenetz, uh, education correspondent at NPR. And, of course, the author of The Art of Screen Time, How Your Family Can Balance Digital Media in Real Life. You can join our conversation. The number is 866-733-6786. Let's bring in... Allie Fishman. She's a high school senior. She attends San Francisco University High School. She's going to attend Duke in the fall. Congratulations to your future basketball team and welcome to the show. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, so why don't we start here? Could you just walk us through like what do you do with screens in a given day? Like do you wake up, grab your phone and start doing what? Yeah. I mean, I guess right when I wake up, I literally set my alarm on my phone. So the first thing I do is shut off my alarm on my phone. (laughs) Um, And then uh, depending on how tired I am, I will sit in bed um, and kind of scroll through Instagram, um, whatever social media I have for like Mm -hmm. five, 10 minutes before I get ready. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I'm at school all day, which has a lot of screens. We use our laptops for almost everything. Um, So I would say that in at least 80% of my classes, I'm on my laptop most of the day. Um, And then after school, you know, I have a little bit of a break. I go do sports. I go hang out with friends. Um, I just have like a temporary stopgap in between the end of the day. And then Mm -hmm. when I do my homework, I go back onto my laptop and, um, that's like most of my homework is done on a screen on a device. And then kind of while I'm doing my homework, while I'm getting ready for bed, that I'll kind of use my phone a little bit more. How do you communicate with friends? Like if you want to get in touch with a with a buddy, like what's the means that you use to do that? Um, texting. That's probably the most common one I use. I know people use Snapchat. I personally like hate Snapchat, but <laughs> um, I, a lot of people use Snapchat calling people, but I would say texting is the Mm -hmm. biggest one. And how about like, you know, free moments in your day, you're sitting there, you're waiting for something, you know, you're waiting for your tea somewhere. Uh, What do you do do during that time? I mean, so TikTok is probably the biggest like time black hole ever. You can literally (laughs) spend hours on TikTok if you're like not even trying. I would say if I'm like waiting in line for something, Instagram is easy because there's no sound and you're just like there. But I would say if you're just mindlessly scrolling through your phone, TikTok. TikTok is it. And is that a new habit during the pandemic? Did you pick up new habits or you're basically doing what you were doing before? Yeah, TikTok was definitely new for me over the pandemic because before it was new and I had kind of convinced myself that I didn't want to download it. But then once like everything had shut down, and there was like no other options for entertainment. Um, everyone kind of downloaded TikTok at the same time. Um, and it kind of just completely blew up. Yeah. So I also, I know you've got younger siblings. Um, mm-hmm. Do you think their relationship to phones and devices is like more or less similar to the one you had as you were growing up? Um, no, I have a, so I have a sister who's two years younger than me. And then I have a brother who's six years younger than me. And I even see the difference between my sister and I, and that's kind of crazy because we're really not that far apart. Um, but we got 
we got we we both got phones at different ages. She got a, a year younger than my, than I did. But I think the main difference actually came from like when we got our first device, um, because I didn't get like any sort of devices until I was in like fourth grade and I got an iPad mini, but my brother had an iPad starting like when he was in first grade. And like Mm -hmm. that difference, um, like those three, that three year difference was actually, it makes quite like my brother who's in sixth grade has social media. And that was not something that I really had or was were concerned about in Mm -hmm. middle school. Do you, what do you think about that? I mean, for the most part, cause my brother, like, still enjoys all the stuff that I enjoyed growing up. Like he still enjoys sports and going and hanging out with friends, but like there's an added element to it because when they go and play sports to also like record themselves playing sports. And it's, it's like weird to me because I don't remember doing that. Um, I don't think it's 100% bad, but when I, when I see it, it does make me a little sad because they're, they are like losing that oh, well, like that child, like we're going to go outside and no one's ever going to see this again because they do have their phones and, you know, it'll be around forever. Yeah. And the weirdest thing, most likely no one will ever see it. And then that one in a million, everyone mm-hmm. will see it. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I was growing up, you know, there were kind of two groups of kids who had their TV access restricted. I mean, one was like the parents who like just didn't have a TV, usually tend to be proud of that. Like we don't have a TV. <laughs> two was, and this was my position, their parents only let them watch PBS, obviously, work for KQED. I'm okay with that. But were there um, positions, do, do, do you see parents staking out similar ground now? Like, okay, no phones at all for this family, or yes, you can have a phone, but only X, Y, and Z. Yeah, definitely. I think more in middle school, especially kids like get phones, but they're not allowed to download certain apps or they get phones and they have major screen time restrictions, um, which I actually think can be really helpful because in middle school, your like self-control is not (laughs) the best. And so, um, you know, having those kind of parameters set up for you is good. But I think in high school, all of that really falls away because parents can't restrict screen time without restricting the amount of like homework you can do. And so it's really a give and take. And so by the time you get to high school, um, most of their rules, like parents can't not let you have a device in high school because it's so geared to like doing online work that I think by the time you're in ninth grade, your parents' rules stop being effective. You know, can I jump in here for a second, Alexis? Yeah, sure. You know, the burden of all of this should not just rest on parents' shoulders alone. There's a role here for policymakers and for the media platforms and for the content providers. Um, We're not, it's really not just a matter of the amount of time, as Anya and others have pointed out over the years. It's what kids are doing, what kind of content they're engaging with. And when you were asking before, you know, how, how is this different from when we all just used to watch TV for however many hours a day? Well, what kids are doing now is different. They are using social media, including at younger and younger ages, and they are watching online videos where if, if your child is watching TV, you know you know what it is they're watching. You can look up and see it there. But when they're on that phone and they're doing social media or they're watching online videos, you don't know what it is they're doing. And for, for tweens who we found are starting to use social media more, not a lot, but a little bit more, mm-hmm. they're 
the social media platforms aren't even really designed for kids that age. So I do think some of In fact, this they're not allowed by by the end user license agreement to use them. Most exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So I do think there's a role for the 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 content providers and for policymakers to be looking at things like how the algorithms are are done and and who's who's allowed on certain social media um, platforms. Yeah. You know, uh, Ali, before we let you go, I mean, how much variation do you see among your friends in sort of their response to all this? Like, do most of you kind of acknowledge like, all right, I should probably use my phone less? Or are you kind of like, what's the sort of standard sort of positions that people have? Yeah, I think everyone in my class has like this, um, this general understanding that we should all be using our phones less. Um, Some people are better at listening to themselves than others. Some people have (laughs) set up their own like screen time restrictions, which is like what our parents used to do. Some people are doing it for themselves now. Um, But I do think that there's like a learning curve that you go through in high school where like freshman, sophomore year, I mean, I was on my phone all the time. And I think by junior, senior year, when you're like more comfortable with the environment you in, I'm, you're in, I'm not sure if they work hand in hand, but like most of the upperclassmen in my school have like started to kind of shy away from all the social media have started to shy away from using their phones all the time. Like I have a friend who like down, who deleted Instagram, deleted TikTok just because like it's, it, it, it is exhausting after being on there for so long. Um, and so, I don't know, I think that I think that there's just this general understanding that everyone knows they need to be on their phone less. Well, just know it's a lifelong struggle. Um, (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us. Allie Fishman, high school senior at San Francisco University High School. She's going to Duke next fall. Enjoy North Carolina. Thanks so much for joining us, Allie. Thank you so much. Want to bring in our uh, first caller, uh, Chuck from Tiburon. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks a lot. Um, Great stuff and really very interesting. I have a 12-year-old. We were, uh, he's turning 13 in May, and we gave him his first phone just this past December, a smartphone. Before then, he had like a watch phone that he could call us if he needed to. Mm -hmm. Uh, And in terms of access to um, social media and other things and using the iPad, I mean, we allowed him to use those, but we would see what he was doing on them and then when we were at restaurants or other things we never used the uh, our phones or an ipad to entertain him uh, mm. when he was younger it was very much very like this is what it was and, and we weren't a big heavy tv watching family either mm-hmm. he for the longest time thought that the only thing that was on tv was sports because that was <laughs> the only time the tv was on so yeah. i think it's a little bit of how permissive the parents are and how aggressive and what their behaviors are with yeah. um with social media and with television and how other kids kind of go with that. Well, Chuck, let me ask you this. Um, one of the things that I find as a parent is other parents' permissiveness also affects the way that, you know, what your kid sees. If they, you know, if I, I call it freestyling. If kids are allowed to freestyle on YouTube, uh, then kids want to go to that person's house and so they can freestyle on YouTube. Do you find that it's easy to sort of maintain these boundaries, even, you know, kind of in a more communal setting? Yeah, I think so. I think, I mean, we've, our son is an only child and we're kind of on the older parent side. Mm-hmm. So I think we've given him, we give him the latitude to make the right decisions. And he doesn't, I mean, I haven't put any restrictions on our uh, internet at home. Uh, I mean, the iPad has 
the restrictions and the computers have the restrictions not to go to adult content, Mm -hmm. but he could figure out how to get around that. And he hasn't done that. So I think there's a big trust. Um, And in terms of other kids, I mean, I think it's also the kids tend to socialize with whom they want to hang out with and kids that are doing things that uh, make sense or don't make sense. And we have pretty adult, not, I mean, super adult conversations with our son, but I mean, we'll sit and listen um, to things on the radio and make decisions and we'll go like, well, do you think that was a good decision? Do you think that wasn't a bad decision? So I think it's a little bit of that. I mean, but as, as we all know, growing up when, you know, you, you tend to the permissive parents, you start to identify who they are in the permissive <laughs> families and you kind of like manage that. Right. And that's, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was no different than in the late eighties, early nineties than it is now in that regard. Yeah, yeah. Hey, Chuck, thanks so much for your perspective. Uh, really, really appreciate that. You know, uh, Jason and Anya, going to go to you each kind of in, in turn here. Jason, w- when we talk about, you know, parents paying attention to what their kids are, are doing, what should parents really be on the lookout? Like, what are the kinds of things that maybe don't, uh, on the surface may seem fine, but um, but you might be worried about? Yeah, thanks. I think that's a great question. And um, I, I think I just really want to emphasize that there is not really a one-size-fits-all situation for all families and all people, but I do think that in general, uh, having like very open conversations with your children, I think a lot of what we've discussed about um, yeah, being open, ap- asking open-ended questions, reflecting on how your kid is, is feeling about it, uh, can all be helpful to just get a sense of, uh, of you know, the type of media, social media they're engaging in and, and their screen use. Um, and you know, the American Academy of Pediatrics um, back in the day recommended limiting uh, screen use, at least in teenagers, to less than two hours per day. But as we've mentioned, all that kind of went out the window during the pandemic. And so now the recommendation is really just having a family media use plan. And that sort of involves having a regular discussion with your family about, um, you know, general principles or rules. You know, there may be times when you want to encourage screen-free time, um, you know, often that could be like family meals or right before bed. Um, we know that, you know, using a lot of devices right before bedtime can kind of influence your sleep um, poorly. Um, and as also you had alluded to before, you know, this is an issue that's not going to go away once, you know, kids become teenagers and teenagers become adults. You know, we're all facing these same issues. And so I think that actually role modeling for your kids is really important, too, because we're all faced with these same, um, you know, we, we have opportunities as adults to be on screens all a lot as well. Yeah. Um, and so if we're going to agree to not be on the phone during family meals, it's really important that adults role model that as well. Mm-hmm. You know, Anya, I um, want to just follow on from Jason's uh, point there, which is it seems like when I, when I read the literature on this, it seems like the number one thing you can do to get your kids off their screens is to get yourself off your screen. Is that like an accurate <laughs> depiction of the research? That is 100% the case. And you know, the finger's always pointing back at us. And that starts with very young children and the way that the phone or the television in the background can interrupt those parent-child conversations and um, really make us less focused, less attentive parents. So yes, it always has to start with us. But the other thing I really want to call out is, you know, some parents might be feeling horrible when they hear from a dad like Chuck, who sounds like everything is going great. His kid is super good at self-regulating. So was the teenager who called in. She sounds amazing. Uh, This is going to hit different kids differently. If your kid is neurodiverse 
in any way. If your kid suffers from anxiety, depression, pre-existing issues with body image, eating disorders, this is a dynamic that Vicki and many other researchers have identified. Kids who struggle, struggle more with screens. And, and some kids, this happens in infancy, kids that are having trouble self-regulating in infancy um, are more likely to be watching more screens, um, you know, a few months later. So you know, we can't beat ourselves up. Every kid is different. Their needs are going to be different. You know, some kids, you can put them in a room with every iPad known to man, and they will be quietly sketching or singing to themselves. <laughs> you know, they have the magical ability to self-regulate and, and find edifying things to do. Other kids, uh, one taste, and they're going to become, you know, monsters. So, you know, if you're, if you need help and your kid needs help self-regulating, also, if you're the type of person who goes into, you know, a hole with, I don't know, Oscar recaps, let's say, um, <laughs> probably your kid is going to be the same way. And, and we all need kind of guardrails and just, just to emphasize that it's not one size fits all. Yeah. You know, Mike writes in between lockdown, marriage survival, enabling our 10 year old to socialize remotely, et cetera. We are the poster family for this issue. What I tell myself as I work to proactively arrange positive experiences in real life now that the dust is settled I tell myself quality content is out there, like screen time involving games or entertainment along with social interaction with buddies. But I'm also aware of my level of privilege. We can afford subscriptions to more creative options with learning involved. Thank you for this needed discussion. And final question, does this screen time help with ADHD? Anya, kind of to your, to your point about kids with anxiety and, and other neurodiversity. Um, does screen time help with ADHD? I mean, there have been very specific applications of certain kinds of games tested to improve focus. Um, there may be situations where, you know, highly structured, you know, kids who have trouble focusing on other activities can focus on media, but it doesn't necessarily translate to other, uh, other situations. Yeah. Yeah. A few more, uh, comments going to the break here. Kelsey writes, it's really hard for parents to learn and understand the tools available to them for managing screen time. We use Apple's features. You have to be actively engaged or kids may watch or listen to things that are not wholly appropriate for their age. Some browsers have plugins, but they don't always work or they get updated and disappear. Habits formed during the pandemic are challenging to unravel. Much of their access is also possible because of Google Classroom accounts, not because I've allowed them to create accounts, email or otherwise. They just choose to sign in with Google. And uh, Tracy writes, on iPhones, it's pretty simple to set up family sharing and then limit time for specific apps and block certain types of content. On PC laptops, we use the Custodio, it's like Q-U-S-T-O-D-I-O app, and do the same. It's surprising to me why these apps are not used more. Uh, you can give us a call. As we've heard, you know, the most common advice researchers have for parents struggling with screen time is to put down your own phone. So have you had success establishing boundaries around screen time for yourself. And what did that do for your kids? You can give us a call, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can get in touch, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, KQED Forum, or you can email your questions to forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This is Forum. Stay tuned for more after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. 
Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Mandrigal. We're talking about the rise in screen use by tweens and teens during the pandemic and how adults and caregivers can address those issues. We're joined by Jason Nagata, Assistant Professor of Pediatrics and Adolescent Medicine at UCSF. been working a lot in this realm. Vicki Rideout, Lead Researcher of the Common Sense Census, Media Use by Teens and Tweens, a new report from Common Sense Media. And Anya Kamenetz the education correspondent with NPR and the author of The Art of Screen Time, How Your Family Can Balance Digital Media and Real Life. You know, Vicky, from my understanding, there's kind of a key moment, you think, in a lot of families' relationships uh, with their devices, and it's when a young person gets their first device, right? Like, why is that such an important moment? I mean, it's the it's the last time you have a real chance to to have some influence and have some sway and to make any kind of deals with them that you're going to make. So I think that the the moment that you provide the first mobile device um, is a great time to have those conversations with your kid where you have an understanding. What's our agreement? Um, How how much time are they going to be able to spend on it? but also what activities are they going to be able to do on it? What do they think they want to do with it? What do you think um, you want them to do with it? What are the agreements about those times that Anya was mentioning, like meal times or bedtime and so on. So that really is a critical moment. And I wanted to just um, also give a shout out to my friends at Common Sense Media too, because all of this we're talking about with parents and these privacy and content and all of that. At, at commonsense.org, they really do have a huge amount of resources for parents where mm-hmm. they not only talk about the quality of all kinds, of, like whether it's TV shows, movies, apps, they explain to you what the newest social media platform is. So you don't have to feel like an idiot for not knowing what TikTok is or Snapchat is or how it works. And they also really do have some really good advice for how to do all of these technical things in terms of setting the parental controls or the privacy limits. So it's a resource, commonsense.org, that that parents should take advantage of. Let's uh, bring in another caller, Carrie from the East Bay. Welcome, Carrie. Hey, Carrie, can you hear me? Hi there, can you hear me? Hey, hey. Yeah, yes, I can. thank yeah. you. Thanks for joining oh, us. Oh, I just want to mention, yeah, thank you. I've got two boys, lots of screen issues, spent a lot of time on <clears throat> working on their the time that they use the um, screens and what they're using them for. Mm-hmm. And one of the biggest challenges we've had is that the school-issued Chromebooks, or um, even if they use our devices, they need to access screens to complete their homework. Mm-hmm. And a significant amount, including worksheets, math, everything is online. And we can't control um, the school Chromebook and the controls they install are not sufficient. And so, you know, the teachers complain about them not having a good attention span and all these things. And there's a lot of convenience of the Chromebooks. But I think that we might want to think about the ages at which we've switched the kids to doing all their work online. 
mm-hmm. and what that looks like and how we can make sure they're not on YouTube the whole time. So I have to uh, supervise personally. And if you're both working and you're stressed, that's asking a lot from parents. So Ugh, that's all tough, I want to mention is that. Tough moment, right? Because you've got to of... keep having the conversation. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. So I just want to mention that we've made it extra hard for parents. And now that the pandemic is mellowing out, that's something I wish schools would consider, at least until high school. Yeah. Anya, what do you think about how the pandemic in particular, yeah, this this fact that so much of school is now done on, on computers, how do you think that's affected the equation here? You know, I have kind of a, a galaxy brain take on this, Alexis, because, you know, I've been spending the last few years reporting on kids in schools and uh, for an, a new book about kids in schools and the pandemic. And, you know, what we're talking about here is basically a situation where a kid doesn't want to do their homework and they choose to do something else and it's convenient for them to do that. Right. And so what we're basically talking about is disrupting the coercive situation of school or of home where you have to make someone do something or else they're not going to do it. And so, you know, the big picture thinking around that is uh, how do we develop motivation? And I know this sounds kind of crazy, but a kid who's actually motivated to do their schoolwork or who finds it interesting Um, rather than saying we have to lock kids down and lock down their devices or get them off a device um, in order for them to complete their schoolwork. And so that's that's not something that a parent should be expected to solve on their own. It's a school problem. It's a nation problem. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't you know, it doesn't get solved with better parental controls on a Chromebook, because, I mean, uh, a kid who's who's motivated is going to be motivated, a kid who is easily distracted. I mean, all of us are, but we get distracted when we're not. Um, seeing the big picture and not able to commit to a course of action that's going to ultimately be productive. And that's really what we need to deal with, um, I think, in our whole education system. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. Thank you, Anya. And thanks for that uh, perspective, Carrie, from the East Bay. Let's bring in Michael from uh, San Rafael. Hi, good morning, everyone. Hey, good morning. I'm a, I'm a teacher in San Francisco Public Schools, and I've been teaching middle school about 15 years. And I'm seeing a lot of changes in students from um, – I want to say non-academic screen time because I think that's that's something we got to talk about too. Is that just because a student has online homework doesn't mean they're they're, they're using entertainment sites, right? Um, and I, I wondered if there's going to be anything in the in the topic today about you know correlations with with negative mental health or mental health anomalies because mm-hmm. I it's like saying hey people are eating two hours more of donuts you know and that's just the end of the conversation. It's like. What are the, what are the health ramifications of this? Um, yeah, I'm very very concerned about it, as a lot of my peer teachers are. And one thing I do over spring break is I have students challenge themselves to stay off any type of screen interaction for ten hours at a time, like one stretch over the next nine days. Work we have, and uh, you know, write write an essay about it. We have a conversation in class about it, what was difficult, what was good about it, and have kids sort of. Uh, investigate their own habits from a, from a personal a personal experience. So, and what do you topic? And it's one that we're quite concerned about in the school. Well, you know, Michael, I'm going to ask uh, Jason about this in just a second. But I'm just curious, like, what do you see that's different that is concerning to you? Like, what are the actual signs where you're like, oh man, this is different than it was ten years ago? Kids behave or seem in in mass to behaving slightly different. Yeah, thanks. That's a really good question, Alexis, because it's something I can't really put my finger on. Um, you know, I work with eighth graders, so they've been they've missed a huge chunk of development socialization mm-hmm. from basically like eleven and a half to thirteen, which is tragic and 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 really tough. Um, we're still, I think, working through it a lot. Um, 
I'm seeing a lot of flat affect. You know, a lot of the boys I work with, my school is mostly working class immigrant kids. And, you know, it's, they're pretty upfront. You know, they're eighth graders. They're pretty transparent. Like, Hey, I was, I was gaming for six hours last night, you know, Mm -hmm. and, um, and things like that. And, and, and a lot of the girls tend to trend more towards social media use. Like I was on TikTok for three hours and this and that, they tell me these things. I just see a lot of flat affect, you know, Mm -hmm. it seems like there's almost a dopamine, the dopamine burnout completion effect. Yeah. 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 Uh huh. And we watched the film, the social, uh, the social dilemma in class that, I think touches on a lot of these issues. Yeah. It's it's definitely a little melodramatic and biased, but um, I just want to put in a, a plug too for Common Sense Media. They're a huge resource for teachers and especially for me. So absolutely. Hey, thank you. Yeah, so much, thank you. Michael. I'm just I'm concerned about the young people. I think it's uh, important to get analog activities uh, in, in people's lives at a very young age so they enjoy them, continue to enjoy baseball or knitting or cooking or whatever it is. I think if, if you start that early, then the screen time has less allure. Yeah. Hey, thanks, Michael, for that perspective. You know, Jason, what are, when, when someone comes to you, they clearly have identified that they are, they are in need of, like, clinical help. But obviously there's a kind of spectrum from you know, subclinical symptoms to, like, real, real symptoms of crisis. Um, what are the things that you, you should be looking out for? Yeah, thanks so much. And, uh, yeah, I think... There is, as you said, there's a sort of a spectrum. There's in some ways a slippery slope because on the one hand, we do need screens for educational purposes. Eventually, when people are entering the workforce, you know, you need to be able to use computers and digital technology. But, you know, these studies like the common sense study is showing that the entertainment or recreational screen time is, you know, basically a whole nother school day or work day. um, And that definitely does have health consequences. Um, So I think in terms of warning signs, you know, uh, I think... There are actually recently have been new actual disorders that have come out, like there's gaming disorder or video game addiction, social media addiction. There are, you know, a proportion of young people who, as we've mentioned, kind of just are more likely to then go into this vortex and get really stuck into, um, you know, being really addicted to their phones, not being able to get off of them, um, you know, gaming for 10 hours straight, being on social media for 10 hours straight. And unfortunately, um, you know, we I take care of young people who, get stuck into disordered eating vortexes. Um, and, and so I do think that for those people, definitely there are really serious health consequences and um, that requires, you know, talking to your pediatrician, a, um, you know, a healthcare professional, you know, getting into therapy and potentially even more. And I think it's also important to note that, um, you know, screen use in itself may not be inherently like hundred percent good or hundred percent bad, but when you're spending nine hours a day, uh, uh, on screens, the other impact it has is like, what what could you have been doing with those eight or nine hours a day that you didn't do because you were stuck in front of your screen? Like, right. you know, if you were, you could have been socializing with friends in real life or doing physical activity. Uh, we had a study recently that showed that uh, teens who spend more time like binge watching television or Netflix are also more likely to binge eat. So, you know, if you're just watching TV passively, you're more likely to snack, overeat, even if you're not hungry. And that has attributed, is attributed to a lot of the weight gain and, um, you know, sort of sedentarism that we've seen during the pandemic. So I think there are also important physical uh, consequences as well. I'm just, I'm really uncomfortable that we're pathologizing kids who have been through such an intense 
trauma over the last two years. The, the teacher described, he you know, teaches in an under-resourced community. Maybe kids are spending too much time gaming, but there's also a mental health crisis, as the Surgeon General has pointed out, because of a lack of access to mental health services, because of social isolation, a loss of meaning and purpose. Many times people who are ill, there's 200,000 children that have been bereaved by this pandemic. I think social media use is a behavior. It's an externalizing behavior. It's not necessarily the source of the dis- very real distress that I'm sure this teacher feels um, and, and many people feel that young people are going through. Yeah, that's a great point, Anya. Thank you for, for bringing, bringing that into the conversation. I um, want to add uh, Kristen from San Francisco. Welcome, Kristen. Hi. Hello. Can you hear me okay? Oh, yeah, sure can. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I have a gender nonconforming kid. Um, my child came out in fourth grade. And school is really, really challenging. And I just want to, you know, express the point of view that sometimes screens are really different for these kids and have a different function and can can be a bit of a game changer. So, you know, my son's grades were really, really horrible. And he was having a terrible time in the school environment. And the pandemic really changed things for him. Uh, Being able to do school online at his own pace dramatically improved his grades. And he found a community of people who are like him from across the country on social media. So people who play the same video games, who like art, and who are also gender nonconforming. And so I think there's, a, there's something to be said for the positive in, um, in screens sometimes. Yeah. And um, so it can be up to the individual kid. Yeah. And particularly for kids that might want to find a community that's more understanding outside their own school. Like you're saying, the community building aspects of the Internet, they're, they're still there. There's a lot of other stuff, but they're definitely still there. Yeah, and Alexis, yeah, I mean, I, we have seen this in research. Sorry, um, but that that to echo what you what you just said um, there, Mom. This this is um, totally borne out in the research. We have done surveys with LGBTQ young people, and for them in particular, social media is especially important. They're sometimes they're not even welcomed in their own families, let alone their communities. And we had one 14-year-old non-binary kid who told us, you know, for me, just seeing people being able to express themselves the way they want to uh, makes me happy because I can't really do that in my community. So it's really critically important for some young people. And to Anya's point, it's really important for some young people's mental well-being to be able to connect in meaningful ways with peers on social media. Absolutely. Kristen, were you going to make one other point? Yeah, the other point I wanted to make is that it is really important to have the same guardrails and to make sure that people who are safe for you can access you and that people who are not cannot. Mm -hmm. So it's really been a double-edged sword with social media and I don't want to paint it all as like really happy, but I think as a parent, it's being able to say, okay, who can access you personally and who should not. Yeah. Thank you, Chris. That's uh, two awesome notes. Really appreciate that. want to get in, uh, squeeze in one last call. Uh, Greg in Redwood city. You're on the show. Welcome. Good morning. I just want to say, you know, um, I hear the parents and understand the frustration. Um, but I also, you know, you know, as a kid without the the phones and all the rest of it, you know, we were able to self, you know, um, maintain ourselves pretty efficiently. And I think there's a lot of overparenting. And also, I don't think there's enough policies to actually put spaces for, you know, kids and preteens and teens and all the rest of it. So they they can actually get out and sort of, you know, manage themselves and have a good time and enjoy, you know, finding new opportunities and creativity. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks for that uh, perspective, Greg. You know, Anya, I wanted to uh, ask you one last thing. You know, one of our listeners, Jamie, wrote in to ask, you know, are there any studies that are looking at the long-term impacts of creativity and or kids' ability to create their own form of entertainment? And I just wanted to kind of extend that to creativity on screens as well, <laughs> not just, um, you know, what, what do we know about being able to sort of engage those faculties and kids both on and off screens? So I think what the caller just said um, is really spot on. And it's really about what do we do as a society, schools, community groups, the government, to make sure that our online spaces for kids are safe and inviting and places where being creative and participatory is more the norm than not. I mean, those things have been happening since the beginning of the internet, um, but we have this move towards, you know, corporate owned social media platforms where they are driving engagement um, rather than necessarily creativity. We still see an incredible creator culture. And I see my daughters growing up saying it's a normal thing to do to, you know, uh, talk about what you're doing. If you're cooking, if you're dancing, you should be making a video about it as well. And so, you know, the, how do we inhabit, how do we lift up and celebrate participatory culture online and and make it a thing that is normal and exciting for kids to do, um, I think is is really the question. That's so great. Uh, Vicki, last thing, if you just have one, one bit of advice for parents out there, just real quick, uh, what would it be? Well, um, think about the age at which you get them. Uh, their first device, uh, talk to kids about what they're doing. And for me, what I want to look at going forward is what is going to happen with the metaverse and with virtual reality, because everything we've been talking about so far here today is going to pale in comparison with kids being in a 360 environment where they can't see anything in the real world. They can't hear anything in the real world. They're all in this Mm -hmm. um, screen environment. So that's my final word. We've been talking about the rise in screen use by tweens and teens during the pandemic and how adults, caregivers, and policymakers can address those issues. We've been joined by Vicki Rideout, lead researcher of the Common Sense Census Media Use by Teens and Tweens. Thanks for joining us, Vicki. Thank you. Also joined by Jason Nagata, assistant professor of pediatrics and adolescent medicine at UCSF. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Nagata. Thanks so much for having me. And Anya Kamenetz. Education correspondent at NPR and the author of The Art of Screen Time, How Your Family Can Balance Digital Media and Real Life. Thanks so much for joining us, Anya. Oh, thanks for having me. Yeah. Earlier, we also spoke with high school senior Allie Fishman. Congratulations. Going to Duke. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Forum is produced by Ariana Prail, Blanca Torres, Susie Britton, Dan Zoll, Grace Wan, and Caroline Smith. Judy Campbell is lead producer for the 9 O'Clock Hour. Our engineers are Danny Bringer, Katie McMurrin, Brandon Willard, and Chris Hoff. Our interns are Jennifer Ng and Paul C. Kelly Campos. Our executive editor is Ethan Toven Lindsay, and our chief content officer is Holly Kernan. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. 
Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country... We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.